Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. My name is Tim Williams, and I'm hosting the Grimshaw Cities podcast. Our guest today is Sue Lloyd Hurwitz, the chief executive of one of Australia's most significant developers, Mervac, um, who is, as you will find, very passionate about sustainability and indeed social inclusion, and runs her company accordingly. Fascinating conversation. One topic we did not touch on because we did not know is that a, a building that Grimshaw had done for Mervac in Melbourne, the Alderfleet building, has been selected as the winner of the Office Completed Buildings category at the World Architecture Festival 2021 Awards, so a prize-winning building that we didn't talk about, but uh, I'm sure you'll find out more about in due course. So today our guest is Sue Lloyd Hurwitz. So I'm delighted to say that today I'm talking to Sue Lloyd Hurwitz, who's chief executive of Muvac, one of the biggest, most important, and I think best developers uh, in Australia, and we're going to talk about all that. Um, she is also chair, still chair, I think, Sue, of the Green Building Council of Australia. That's right. And that is also something I'm sure you're very proud of and very active in, and I want to talk about that too. I'm also quite intrigued to discover you have a link with INSEAD, which um, I also want to talk about, um, and I want to talk about everything. So we shall start somewhere. Um, How has this extraordinary 18-month period been for you personally and, and the company? Let's start there. Well, it's um, something we never really contemplated having to deal with. And I've, I've learned an enormous amount about myself, about the company, about society, about how people respond under pressure over the last 18 months. And it's remarkable to me how, how resilient Mervac turned out to be. I remember very clearly last March, um, even before the, the work from home or stay at home orders were put in place, we made a decision on the 13th of March, it was a Friday, that we would work remotely. And over the weekend, 800 people pivoted to working remotely and Monday morning, everybody was operational. And it, it was really the direct result of our longstanding belief that work is what you do, not where you are. And we've always had a high degree of flexibility in the organisation. 75% of people have some had some form of flexibility before COVID. And so we were able to make that pivot really quickly. And so we just picked up and carried on. And over the last 18 months, we've delivered multiple very significant projects. We've kept construction going through lockdowns. Uh, we've managed to maintain our assets. We've bought things, built things, settled apartments. It's remarkable to me, the resilience of the business. And it's, I think, due to the resilience of the people. But there's a couple of things in that. One for an international audience, because not all countries did the same as, as we've seen in Australia, which is uh, construction carried on in, uh, in Australia. In, uh, and it didn't always in, in other countries. In the UK, I think they stopped construction. So that was like a big political call um, based on health advice, I'm sure, about open air working and all that kind of stuff. So that was a big call, I think. But and I'll come back to the kind of public-private moment. But I, I'm very intrigued by what you said about the resilience of the of the the staff, the workforce, the company. Um, I think often people don't know how it's interesting. This I, I work for a, a bunch of uh, construction and, and development companies, and they're all much more innovative, I think, than people know. And some of their management cultures, you know what I mean. I mean, I, I we've all you know in in Australia, Lendix has, uh, has been famous historically for being like a finishing school for you know people in all sorts of companies ended up 
started their life often. Well, know, including me. Indeed, you know, and I and I did work for Lendlease in the UK, and I was really impressed by the kind of, you know, it's not something I expected growing up in South Wales, where I used to work on a local building site every now and again. You know, it just the seriousness, the intellectual seriousness of of the companies and the kind of company that you run. So I'm very intrigued by. Um, so you found that the staff themselves were resilient but also that the company was resilient. And you think partly because it was used to doing some of this kind of working in, in various different locations, do you think? Or is it was a completely new thing to you? You didn't expect them to be quite so resilient. Oh, I think it's a combination of things. And I, I think to your point about innovation in the real estate sector, I think that is that is a valid point. And one of the value, values that we hold dear is to be open and curious. Now, we try very hard to be a porous organisation on the edge so that we're uh, often working with lots of different people on things that we're exploring, um, hopefully with an, an open mind. So I think it's a combination of the the desire to leave an impact and be a force for good is genuine at Mervac, and that that came through over the last year and um, how the teams dealt with customers who were struggling um, to get everybody through and out to the other side. How people dealt with each other inside the business with genuine heartfelt kindness. There were many moments over the last year and a half where I've literally been moved to tears uh, by how people have responded. I'll, I'll just share one story around that. Um, early on last year, the ELT had taken a pay cut, the board had taken a pay cut, and we were working out what to do with the rest of the organisation. And we landed on uh, all in together. We were going to cut people's hours by 20%, no matter whether they were working 120 or 50%. And if you needed to keep your take-home pay whole, you could access leave because we do recognise that many people do live month to month with bills that need to be paid. So we thought that was a fair mechanism. So I get on an all-staff call, which we were doing every week, and I'm delivering this terrible news that there's no, going to be no bonuses and your pay is going to be effectively cut. In that moment, somebody typed into the chat, I've got lots of extra leave. Can I donate it to one of my team members who has none? Wow. And it, it floored me. That, that kindness, of the, in, the, the first instinct of that person was to help somebody else rather than say, oh, I don't really want to have my pay cut, thank you. Uh, it was a, a kindness which I saw a thousand times over the last year. So I guess it was a combination of the culture that we've built, the, the way that we already embraced flexibility, the desire to leave the world a better place. And I'm not downplaying the struggles. There are many people who have struggled through this uh, all of us, I think, have in some form are struggling, whether it's um, homeschooling or isolation or boredom or whatever it is. I'm not underplaying it and making it sound all rosy, uh, but we continue to try and do our best, not perfectly, all the time uh, to get through the other side. And my current mantra for being resilient is, uh, is good enough is good enough right now. But you can't possibly do everything, so let's work out uh, our head of culture and reputation has a great saying, uh, work out which are the glass balls and which are the rubber balls and make sure you catch the glass ones. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, the mantra, that's the mantra we're living by right now. I, I, I think this has been the world's greatest natural experiment in all sorts of things, you know, and we, I think we learn, I, I don't want to come across as, as groundlessly optimistic about life, but I, I, I think I'm in danger of, of doing this, but I basically think that we've learned how strong we can be not, not how weak we are, but how strong we can be as people, as cultures, as governments and private sector. I actually think that strongly and I, I'm very delighted to, and I could see how Merva sort of survived and, and even to some degree flourished in this really rather 
extraordinary environment. One of the things I wanted uh, an international audience to understand, and I, I learned this when I, I was, I mentioned I was working for Lendlease around the Olympics in, in London, and I, I didn't know anything about Australian business at that point, and I had not understood the extent to which, uh, I think, the, the real estate sector in Australia is even more mature and developed and, and innovative than the, the UK one. And I'm willing to, you know, stand that up in a court of law. And I, uh, so I think people need to understand we're talking about major businesses in, uh, in Australia. How, how, what's the capitalization of Mervac uh, at this point? How, how big a business are we talking about? Uh, we've got um, $25 billion of assets under management. Market cap's about, uh, haven't looked recently, $14 billion, something like that. Yeah. It's ASX top 50 company. Uh, but it, we're, we're more fixated on the impact we have rather than the, the size of the company. But obviously, being a large company gives you resources to do more things. One of the things I think you've been very innovative of around is, uh, and very interested yourself, I think, obviously, personally, being chair of the Green Building Council is the whole sustainability, resilience, and I guess we're moving towards a big circular economy kind of discussion at this point in time. Where did, where did that interest come from, from your, your background? Well, that's, a, that's part of the desire to be a force for good and leave the world a better place, because it's, a, I think, abundantly clear that we have to take action and we can't wait for governments that corporate Australia and individuals in society, citizens, have to take action. And uh, way back in 2013, we launched our first sustainability strategy, trying to pull together all the things we were already doing and to set some very big targets. And we called it, this changes everything. And we had targets to be net positive in water, waste and energy by 2030. We had targets around social procurement, around community impact, around governance, around trust. Um, and we, we set out on this strategy and at the time people told us we were crazy and you shouldn't set targets that you don't know how you're going to achieve, which bemused me because I think that's the point of setting ambitious targets because it opens you up to exploration of, well, we actually don't know how to be net positive in water. Let's find some people who can help us do that. And uh, we, uh, we, we set about doing all these things. We refreshed the strategy in 2018, 19 and really focused it down. We learned that we were trying to do too many things. They were all good things, but we we're trying to do too many things that some of them weren't that impactful. So we narrowed down onto six focus areas and recommitted ourselves to our major targets. And we're going to get to net positive energy probably this year. We're already down 80% in our carbon footprint since, um, since we put that in, in place. And we've got a great experiment going on at our apartment site at um, Willoughby here in Sydney, where we, we've got a plan to halve the amount of waste coming off that site. I think that'll be really interesting to see how that experiment works. And it's um, over, the, over the time, people don't say we're crazy anymore because everything has moved on. I think and I'll, I'll share a little anecdote around that. Uh, back in about 2014, we were doing our investor roadshow and we were in Melbourne and, and one of our security holders, uh, major investors said to us, look, so I've got a tip for you. I said, yes. He said, look, can you just stop talking about sustainability? I was like, well, no, actually, thank you for the advice, but I'm declining to take that advice and carried on. And uh, fast forward to the relaunch of This Changes Everything Mark II, and we were having a lunch in the before times when you could have lunch, and we were launching our second phase of the strategy, and this guy was there. And I told the story, not mentioning his name, of course, but to illustrate how far 
things had changed. And after the lunch, he came up to me and said, was that me? And I said, yes, it was. And he said, I'm here to tell you I'm converted. And that, that dialogue has completely shifted from investors not being interested in talking about sustainability to I think every single meeting we now have with our security holders, it is a key topic of conversation. And it's finally getting into the individual consumer in the real estate sector, that our customers, five years ago, if we were talking green, whether it was a home or an apartment, they would hear corporate spin, blah, blah, blah. Now they are buying upgrades to make their homes more sustainable. And linking it back to where we started this uh, bit of the conversation around the Green Building Council, which I am very proud to be the, the chair of, we're about to launch a home certification strategy. So finally getting in to the bulk of the built environment in Australia and being able to certify homes. Now that would be, <clears throat> excuse me, that would be revolutionary because uh, the, uh, the built environment is obviously a massive part of the creation of emissions in any country and the residential side of it is significant. And the fact also to, to explain to people, Green Building Council is like self-regulatory. It's, uh, you know, it's not come from government. You're doing it <clears throat> to yourselves, as it were. So it's a huge exemplar if you can pull that off. Yes, well, we're very excited for the launch. We, we were going to launch it in the last quarter of this year, but um, we're not entirely sure with lockdown, what is the best way to do it? But I think we would just get on with it anyway, because it is a revolution, it really is. So one of the other people we're interviewing, I know you know, uh, Dan Labad. And Dan Labad, when I first met him, said to me, he's a bit younger than me, <laughs> when, I, when I met him, he said something about this agenda. He said, what you gotta understand is, Tim, for people of my um, generation, uh, green is non-negotiable. This is about like 10 years ago, right? And I thought, really? Uh, and I and I was wrong. And uh, but also, what's very interesting, and you've you've alluded to this, is that people didn't necessarily expect corporate Australia or or corporate anywhere to lead on some of this agenda. And in my lifetime, I've seen a big shift in kind of. And as you say, again, it's not just like ESG requirements. It's not just like some sort of uh, just reporting. It's actually more considered and deeper. I think. It definitely can't be a tick the box exercise because people can smell inauthenticity a mile away. It has to be genuine from the heart and real. Now, we, we make sure that we focus very much on doing the doing. You, you can spend your whole life filling in indexes. There are so many indexes and rankings that you can get in this space. Uh, we're, we're very selective about which ones we participate in because we'd rather spend the time doing things and filling in the forms. Uh, but it's great to see the conversation be mainstream and it's the, it's our investors and our customers talking to us, not the ESG people talking to the ESG people. Yeah, and I think also you've gone ahead of government in many places, I think, which is really very interesting. Um, and, and again, I don't think people expected to see that. And I think, and also you've proven that the bottom line is not, it's not like you don't sacrifice the bottom line. People want to actually, you know, live in such places and work with such companies. I was going to ask you about it. You're, you must be attracting people now who just want to work with Mervac because of its values. Uh, we we do we we have a we have a new starter orientation every month and it's obviously being done virtually at the moment and I go to everyone and I uh, introduce people to Mervac and say welcome and we're glad you're here and then we ask them why have you joined and the answers are one of two things generally it's along the lines of great projects I want to work on some iconic projects want to leave the world a better place and the other answer is you guys work differently and I want to be part of that. So it is an attractor 
of of talent. I I think the way the way that we work, um, and we we work really hard to be real about it as well. Sometimes I can I can tell the story of Mervac, and it can sound like this wonderful plan. And eight years ago, we embarked on this strategy, and we did all these things, and our staff engagement went from thirty seven percent to ninety percent, and it sounds like a really neat planned story, but it's not like that at all in the actual living of it because it's got human beings in it. So it's a lot more messy along the way. It has been a great journey, but I, I never try and sugarcoat it and make it sound like it, you know, it was all easy and planned and we've always known what we were doing. That's not the case at all. So one of the things I want to ask you before I go to the kind of a bit of a COVID discussion, I think we have to have about how it might have changed things, because I think it's possible that the kind of, in a sense, the radicalism of COVID has led to a general radicalism of, of opinion, you know, in the sense of things strangely, unexpectedly seem possible now that they might not have 18 months ago. I think we'll, I want to talk a bit about that. I just want to go back one step, the, again, for an international audience, one of the things that makes residential development, uh, development in Australia, I think, very, very different is the amount of private investors there are into, you know, we haven't got anything quite like this in, in, in to explain in, in, in Britain, you might, if you're a developer, you you, have, you might have conventional bank money and uh, and all sorts of people might invest, but you've got an incredibly uh, mature um, approach to getting like mum and dad investors involved in in housing and development in Australia, which I've never I've never experienced before. It's very different. Um, and one of your jobs is to make sure that you get that kind of investment coming in from various sources. Has there ever been any resistance to your um, you know this important environmental agenda from any of your any of your investors. I've, I've never heard of it, and there are uh, there are other companies they can invest with if, you know, if it's not compulsory <laughs> to work with us if they don't like it. That is true. So it's, uh, we're very clear about what we stand for, and if well, it's great. I mean, like it's an important point, you know, because I'm sure there are some people with the old, older style views of the industry who think, oh, you're going to scare investors away, and that's just not not been your experience at all. I think. It's not been our experience at all. And whether it's owner occupiers or investors, you know, we are people are seeing the value of having, and particularly through COVID, the value of having a safe, healthy, sustainable home. Yeah. Because we're all spending so much time in our homes, suddenly the quality of that home has become more important. And it's changed, it's changed a lot of things, uh, particularly around health and well-being. Let's let's talk about that now, because uh, there is a I'm I'm running the following line, which is that uh, some, if you were being negative about the future of cities, you would say, oh my goodness me, there's a big question over the future of the urban. And there's been a bit of a, you know, some people have voted with their feet. Um, there's been a kind of concern that there's in a sense, high density cities are a conveyor belt uh, of infection. In fact, there's a bit of a historical precedent I, I picked up from Andres Duaney, the, the guy in, in the US who's uh, um, the new urbanism. Uh, he makes a very interesting historical point, which uh, might benefit Australian cities, by the way. He says uh, that if you look at the history of the US after the 1918-19 Spanish flu, lots of people moved from um, New York to Miami and from Chicago to LA because of the open air, because of the climate, less dense, warmer, less wet, all that stuff that breeds infection. So there's a kind of international history of people seeking not just running away from cities but going to other ones that might actually offer a, a safer and healthier kind of lifestyle i think that is likely to happen but let's just talk about one thing that has been a critical issue in the industry which is around apartments and flats um and, and the change that seems to be a bit in the market of people valuing um standalone homes again and all that kind of stuff how do you see that 
discussion? What, what's been your experience over the last 18 months? Yeah, okay. Can I take it back to the, that point you were talking about, the future of cities, because it's an absolutely fascinating point. And we wrote a paper in the last six months to exactly on that point. Uh, and we took as our springboard the, the quote from Lord Richard Rogers, a very famous architect, who said that the cities are the heart of our civilized birthplace of our civilization and, and the engine of our economy. But cities don't just happen, they are made. And we posed then the question, are they now in some way being unmade in Australia? And uh, I, if, you, if you want to talk about it, I can unpack it a, a little bit. Uh, but we are firmly of the view that they are not being unmade, but they're being remade right. at a pace which is much greater than it was before. So the obsolescence and the, um, the built form which is going to be suitable for the future and the built form which is not, those trends have just accelerated through COVID. So there is a, a big shift in our cities, um, but there is no getting away from the long arc of history, which is the generation of wealth through agglomeration of people and ideas that is not in reverse. Um, so it is, it, I think it's a fascinating topic and uh, I, I'm an urban geographer way back. That's my oh, this is it. We're, no, no, we're not going to walk away from this one. This is the one. <laughs> going to do this one so because this has been the underlying theme of all my discussions so far which is that uh, um so the, the cities were the future once are they still and the answer is your answer is yes yes and just, so so let's just tease out a few things around that so it it was true in, in the last year that people did exodus gateway cities around the world there would i think manhattan lost five percent of its population why is Australia different? And Australia is different in, in lots of ways. One, the, the things that are pushing people out of places like Manhattan were not just COVID. There were uh, in cities like say, San Francisco and Manhattan, crime has been going up, social unrest, um, Black Lives Matter, or all of the social cohesion is, is fraying. In Australia, in reverse, People are actually happier with their communities over the last year than they were before. Uh, we have crime falling, not rising. Now, we don't have the push factors of pushing people out of uh, unhealthy environments. And we don't have anywhere to push them to. So if you live in the US, you can go work in Denver. It's a big city in, it, in its own right. It, it, it is a city. It has all the things that cities have. We've got this strange urban structure with a few very large cities and then small towns. And the, the depth of employment market, the level of education, the salaries in, small, in a smaller towns, even a Newcastle and Wollongong compared to Sydney, the gap of income is substantial for the same type of role. If you work in finance in Newcastle, you, get, you, will, you are able to attract a job that pays probably 60 or 70% of the same job based in Sydney. So there are so many considerations unpacking there. And there was a, a lot of talk last year about um, Vespers. Remember that the, the, uh, yeah. Bernstock coined the mm. virus escapees seeking provincial Australia. There were more people left Sydney for regional New South Wales in 2017 than in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because of housing affordability. Oh, completely. And so we are not all moving to Byron Bay and Geelong. Yeah. On the margin, if a few people do, it makes a big difference to Byron Bay because it's a small place. Yeah. It makes no difference to Sydney whatsoever. Uh, so it's a false argument to say we're, we're all leaving the cities and we're all moving into uh, tree change or sea change. Uh, some will, and it, it will have a disproportionate effect on house prices and congestion and all those things in those places. But it, Sydney won't even notice. Yeah. 
or Melbourne. Oh. Well, it's a fascinating topic. I'm, uh, oh, no, no, this is no, this is not an act, just something of academic or even personal interest. This is crucial. This is exactly what we want to talk about because I've been running a line. I'm, I'm delighted to speak to you on these matters, Sue, urban geographer that you are, because I'm. I feel a bit of a lonely voice to some degree because I think there's what do you unearth in this uh, it's urbanist optimism that I retain is there's still an underlying anti-urbanism in, in in quite a lot of commentators and uh, you know they all enjoy the benefits of city life and and then there's there's still this kind of sort of uh, feel that are oh, you know it's it's almost like in, in America with the you know the, the the West is historically the and the rural life is like you know the core the epitome of of one's identity there's a bit of that being going on and a bit of kind of suburban kind of revengeism you know uh, that uh, oh yeah well they were you know cities were we, we overemphasized on cities in the first place and all this kind of stuff well okay let me give you some interesting data that i picked up the other day which i think you'd be very interested in soon i'll, I'll post you uh, but essentially recent uh, research showing 40-year trends in employment and they and they show uh, for good or ill but factually there's been a you know a dramatic decline which concerns anybody in terms of jobs no longer requiring unskilled jobs dramatic decline dramatic rise in jobs requiring knowledge skills and all that kind of stuff but that's a spatial shift as well because the agglomeration benefits of jobs you know being together in the knowledge economy has created this massive economic activity which is impossible to replicate in a more decentralized kind of universe and just to put that out there the cbd of sydney Create seven percent of national wealth of Australia, which is the equivalent of the Western Australian mining economy, right? So you walk away from that at your peril, it seems to me. So I think, yeah, but I think your point is is deeper, which is also that yes, there is a remaking going on of our of our cities. They're not standing still in this crisis, but nor is Sydney like a mega city like uh, a New York or or a London or something. It's not quite like that. And, I, and, I, and there is a kind of I feel a kind of Australian exceptionalism that we need to explore a bit in some of this story, which is uh, that the cities were never quite, I mean, Sydney is like a sixth of the density of London in the first place. I mean, it's not, it's not a very dense city. And secondly, we, our health outcomes, I, 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 because I'm, I'm British and I'm Welsh and I've seen, you know, London has 20,000 deaths from COVID uh, from a population of 8 million. That's not the Australian story, even though we are on a, you know, our current travails that's not the australian story and i firmly believe coming out of it there'll be quite a big pull towards the australian future uh, coming out of covid that's my, my manifesto for the moment but i mean I, I i agree with you but do you think the um i mean there's some there were some downsides to our uh, even australian cities before covid mm. we know there was an affordability crisis really our, our, um i mean we'll, we'll talk a bit about that let's go straight Go back to your your main point. So cities are remaking themselves. What what's, what are things you are you seeing on the ground? What are the new market trends? I think what's happening in terms of cities remaking them, themselves faster than they would have before is uh, around uh, the property council um, worked with EY and put out a paper around um, reframing CBDs that part of the city as a central experience district with a broader set of uses, which I, I think will come now. Certainly, there are parts of the planning system don't um, don't like that as a strategy. But I think the best cities in the world are 24-hour cities with vibrant multi-hour uses, and they're not just office locations that uh, empty out come evening time. The Sydney, but, people, for people who understand, sorry, Sydney is quite mono in terms of it's not a very mixed 
uh, at the moment and um, it's very expensive rents as well historically which has I think squeezed out some of the uh, mix of uses that you would see in a Melbourne um, but it's, so it's been an unmixed city and not a very 24-7 city. Yeah I think that's right so I think I think that will change I, I think um, the the way that people use work spaces will change I think this is a, an interesting uh, trend that's uh, changed through COVID is that in our last lockdowns last year, there was lots of musings about, well, the office is dead. We don't really need offices. We can all do our tasks from home. Who needs an office? It's very expensive. This lockdown, I have not heard a single whisper of that. I think the, the theory that the office is dead is a dead theory. Everybody just wants to get back together with other human beings. Hooray. <laughs> so it's, but differently. Right, so, yeah. so our customers are talking to us about air articulation because in a, an office building, air gets recycled five or six times a day. That's not going to be good enough in the future. We will have air in once and out or air that is just contained to one floor. We don't quite know how to do all that yet, but buildings will have to be touchless. So you don't want to be touching things all the time. Uh, so you, you will need a touchless, seamless, frictionless, well-ventilated um, building for people to come together and, and collaborate. Uh, I think we are in a world of hybrid working or omni-channel working, if you like, for forever, where people will select the place from which they want to do whatever the particular task is they're doing, whether that's uh, an ideation session or team building or focus work, or the, it is a work from anywhere world, uh, but that certainly does not get away from the, the power of being together um, and all of the all of the things that come with that. There's some great research that was done last year, and I can't remember who did it, uh, but they they looked at, they took all of uh, your data from your Outlook and your Teams, and, and they worked out uh, who you spent time with before COVID and in what forum, wow. and who you were spending time with in lockdown and in what forum. And what they found was, if you and I had had a strong tie before COVID, we had an even stronger tie now because we've relied on each other to get stuff done. If we had a weak tie, we disappeared, completely disappeared. And so all of the richness that comes from those weak ties, they're not unimportant. Important things happen in those moments, they're gone. Uh, so there's a whole layer of exchange of ideas has just vanished when we're working. Completely, okay. I mean, I totally, I think this is very important and very articulate, if I might say so. I think this is absolutely right. Um, and I just been a bit struck by um, maybe I'm mixing with the wrong people. Maybe my and you're, you're you're dealing with a much more positive crowd than I am. But I'm essentially finding lots of people say, "Oh, don't worry, you know, I'm never going back to the office, and uh, and it's great." And I and I just say, uh, "Well, um, you know, I don't know about you, but personally, I put on about you know about five kilos in in weight just by sitting around. I used to walk to work. Um, I, I don't think that's going to be very good." Uh, the productivity side of it is pretty obvious to me that it's a kind of low level productivity that's achievable but the uh, the spark the ideas the innovation the little over overheard conversations in the office where you say ah i know about that that stuff is really huge and i think also deep sociability of humanity you know we we, we this is not us um i think the last thing is really quite interesting two things i want to talk about this but then we uh, go forward. I could talk about this forever. This is the most important thing. But the, the it struck me one is around um, the uh, you can't train young people. You know, they're, 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 there's a whole culture that they need to get involved in, and it doesn't exist online. I think the second thing also is around women. I'm quite interested in this problem. I think it's understudied. This, you know, the that the, I think that there's a danger of women not being in the office, even in the hybrid 
universe. I have a bit of a concern of a, of a recreation of a kind of gender inequality around this, uh, these realities. I, 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 I mean, you may not be as concerned as, as I am, or maybe it's just me being a, bit, a little, you know, worried about maybe nothing, but I, I see some trends of, of women actually having some of their traditional roles looking after the house reinforced by this homeworking stuff. I, it looked to me as though you're not buying this. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Kim Williams. No, I'm, I'm thinking it through. There's, I think there is some clear research that the domestic burden has largely fallen to women yeah. in, during this period uh, for, for whatever reason that that is true. I, I was thinking along, along the lines of if a, if a woman is, is more often working from home, having your voice heard is hard enough physically. That's what I think. And having it heard when you are remote yeah. And particularly when other people are not remote, I, I think that's very problematic for whatever gender. We saw in the period between these lockdowns when we could work in the office and we, we had some people working from home or on site or from a shopping centre and some people in the office. If there were six people in a room and three people online, the three people online never got to, you have to really work hard to say, so everyone in the room, stop. Now, Tim, what do you think? Because it, in a in real world, we talk over each other and there's a rhythm and a cadence to how the conversation flows and three people can be talking at once, but you can hear them all. Online, you have to be sequenced and you have to leave gaps for people to, to speak. It's very stilted in the, the way it communicates. So, so that hybrid, we were really grappling with that hybrid world of how to make sure we hear the voices of people who are not in the room. Um, because we work really hard on being a, a diverse and inclusive organisation where every voice can be heard. And I do worry that the remote voices are heard less. And if more of those are women, it do does take the gender thing backwards. The other point to your point about you can't train young people online, um, there's the whole culture building that I'm really conscious that while Mervac's got a very distinctive culture, and we've drawn down on the well of that culture over the last 18 months because you don't build culture online. You build it together. Uh, and uh, I'm really conscious that we need to get back together to, to bolster our culture again and to reinforce it. And we've probably had, I don't know, 150 people join us over the last year, and most of them have joined in lockdown and they've never met anybody. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible situation. But, you know, it, like you, I'm an optimist. This is just a matter of time. It's day after day, we will get there. Uh, we, uh, we, are, we were very slow on the vaccination, clearly, and uh, we were very vulnerable when Delta came around. And that rhetoric has all changed. It is only a matter of time now. And uh, so I remain an optimist that, that the, the day will come and we will, we will get there. It's funny, that, that's why I always want to mention that the amazing health outcomes in Australia in comparison, to be honest. I mean, it's a very great performance. I know that we have a cloud over ourselves at this point in time, but it will pass. Um, and, the result, and then we will look back historically and think that was actually handled very well as a community. And, and, a, you know, and I want to talk about collaboration because going forward, one of the things that came out of this for me, it's been the, one of the greatest natural experiments in public-private collaboration that there's ever been, frankly. And I don't think we talk about it enough, actually, but, you know, we've We've given people a huge role 
in the future of the of the country and i don't think they'll want to go backwards from it in a sense you know it's kind of a lot more engagement between people and trusting people to do stuff and all this kind of stuff i want to talk about the public private collaboration because i think one of the things that is required is a change is, is a an evolution in this whole public private collaboration because i don't think we can do the things we're talking about the optimism that you and i have about restoring or remaking our cities will still require a lot of public-private collaboration going on, um, perhaps even more than before, especially around things like economic matters, it seems to me. Um, I'm just wondering your thoughts about public-private collaboration going forward and any thoughts about what form it might take? I think it's a really important topic and to your point about the, the good health outcomes, it really struck me last year how remarkably compliant Australians are. And it's not a slavish adherence to rules. I think it comes from the community spirit that you see in bushfires and floods, that we're all in this together. And I will, I will willingly and happily sacrifice my personal rights and my personal freedom for the good of the community. And not everybody, obviously, but enough people yeah, I'm sure. leapt into that mode. And we, you know, if we were told stand on that green dot, we're standing on that green dot. It's, it was remarkable to me because we think of ourselves as a larrikin country, but we're not at all a larrikin country. We, we obeyed uh, for the greater good, I think. Uh, anyway, so I, I, yeah, that is... No, no, I, I think, but I think it's, but as, a, as an Australian of Britishness, as it were myself, the, uh, the thing I think is quite funny is that it's, uh, the two cultures are quite similar in one respect, you see, which is that where required, they will be very surly and challenging and uh, very independent, you know. But we're also required to play a community game. They will also do that. And I think uh, I think Australians, have, I think I agree with you completely. I think those people who think it's all a strange form of compliance have got a negative thing, have got it wrong. You know, people are making a judgment call and uh, and standing standing by each other. And I completely agree with that. So the um, one of the great revelations to me over the last 18 months has been this new um, this new working together between corporate Australia and policymakers. I've never seen anything like it, and it is a much better way to run a country. So in the, in the first early stage of the crisis, there were working groups that I was involved in, as were many, many CEOs, willingly giving up our time to be in working groups with senior policymakers around the country, co-creating policy, because nobody knew what to do. And so that they would say, we're thinking about doing this, tell us what we can't see. Tell us the unintended consequences of that. Do you think this would work? Uh, if we supported uh, retailers in that way, would that work? And it was a, it was a really collaborative process. And, and uh, so, we, so that was in the crisis mode. And then more recently, when um, in, in Sydney for your international listeners, there was a two week pause on construction and there was a working group put together to, uh, to, to say to the government, here's how we can reopen construction safely um, in, in Sydney. And it was the most unlikely set of bedfellows you have ever come across in the room together, all with a common goal to get construction back to work. It was all the unions, the CFMEU, um, it was all of the industry associations. Uh, I was there representing the Business Council, there was a Property Council, UDIA. It was people who who generally never meet, were in this room virtually with the New South Wales government working up a plan that we could reopen construction. We met every day for two hours uh, to work that through. It's extraordinary level of communication and collaboration. And 
it, you know, it can't continue like that really indefinitely. And there's clearly different roles that policymakers need to play in elected officials and corporate Australia. But I think it's forged relationships that will now last a lifetime. I think that's fascinating. I think it's really important. And I, I take your point that it, in a sense, it can't be sustained at that level. But that kind of thing is important. And I think, as you say, the relationships made will not be broken that easily. And we might actually be going off into a different era after this of, you know, and I, and again, I'm not over optimistic, but I just think it's true that there's your point, the relationships that have been made will help sustain some of this. But I think we'll need even more innovation afterwards than, than now, as it were, because I think there will be some change demands to think about. I mean, the, your point about the central experience district, it's funny, I, I, I resisted, I, almost entirely because I didn't invent the phrase myself, I'm sure of it, but I, res I resisted this idea just because I wasn't sure the word experience, but I, and I didn't want to throw away the word business. But there's no question that our CBDs will be much more mixed use uh, going forward. I think part of the uh, ch challenge around that will be um, certainly in a place like Sydney, I, I think, you know, I completely understandably the city uh, council has taken the view that they want to retain the economic function of the CBD because it's so important to the state and, the, and the, the nation. But I think going forward, we will all have to think about the various models that we have and how what mixed use looks like in our in our central business districts. And I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that that discussion is, is coming and is important to have. And we, we said earlier on, very interesting difference between a place like Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, rents in, in Melbourne are about half what they are uh, in Sydney. And that, that, that has enabled this famous diversity of, of uses and occupiers they have in Melbourne. There's no mystery. It's a lot cheaper for like family companies to get involved or, or you know, uh, we, we have great restaurants and stuff uh, at, a, at a kind of cheaper level in, in Melbourne and a mix of them. And it's, it's to do with the, the mix of uses and the rents and all that kind of stuff. So I think, I think there will be shifts coming and they will be benign and important. I think the other thing you raise about 24-7 city, we, you know, Sydney's not, you know, surprisingly used to kind of close off at uh, five, six o'clock in the evening. And I think we might see something a bit more interesting come back uh, i'm hoping by the way the public private collaboration will i think should also take the form of animating things on the streets and you know getting a lot more uh, sort of try to attract people actively back safely to to the city center but to do that we'll need to be a bit I I imaginative i think i think so and particularly around um, the governments particularly in in victoria and new south wales a massive investment in infrastructure transport infrastructure and it's a great opportunity for that collaboration between private and public to create really, really great places that are activated that leverage off that investment in transport. So we're not just talking the CBD, but we're, we're talking the whole transport network. It, uh, it's really difficult to do because brownfield infield development uh, is difficult because there are communities there already and that they need to be and they need to have a say. And, uh, some, there's quite, uh, there's, there's often a, I, I really would like some of these good cultural things, but so it can put the housing in someone else's suburb. Yes. Yeah, but I, I think when you, when you demonstrate that you can do good things for communities and that you are, you are enhancing the whole experience, not just for the people who are coming in to live in the new development, but the people who are already there, then I, I think you can get community acceptance of that. But that's another great opportunity for the public and private sectors to work together well. We're working on one at Waterloo with um, John Holland, which is a genuine mixed-use overstation development. Uh, and, it, and we've worked really hard to engage with the community around there. We know that community well from our South Everly de 
development for your international listeners that's just south of the CBD in in Sydney and we've been working there for years and we're trying really hard not to not to have this new shiny thing come and land on a community uh, but be inviting to the community and providing something for the people that are already there tricky but to, certainly can do well I know but for the again for people who don't know Sydney it's uh, you've done some good work there and also um, if you ask people locally, I think they think that that you've been respectful and engaging with people, and I, I, you know, I think that's important going forward. You know, the um, that is the type of relationship building that we will need to do. I want to talk a bit about that as we come to a, con a, cl a conclusion about this discussion. I, I two or three things I want to focus on. One is around um, the kinds of development we might see going forward. Let's go back to that that whole issue about where people will want to live in our city. And, and how they will want to live. You've alluded to some of this. We, we've seen a kind of um, a, a movement in the market towards people having enough space at home. Um, so we've seen some you know, space become an issue again, or, and it could be just intelligent reuse of, of apartment design, to be honest, rather than do they just all want to live in standalone houses? So it's a big, there's an issue around design going forward, I think, around the, the, what people will use their home space for. I think the second thing is around, and again, I think you touched on this. Um, one, one of the things that I, I came across Mervac with, uh, I won't be specific about, it, but you know, I, the, there's a discussion around the future of um, industrial land, old style, you know, um, often sort of 1920s, 1910s kind of industrial stuff. That we want more jobs closer to the heart of our city, but we might need some design solutions we haven't got at the moment, and, and mixes of uses, and you know, it's very interesting where that goes. And I think the final thing is about suburbia, which is, um, I'd like to talk to you about this, but partly because I always like to say to my guests that I wrote a document 15 months ago called Superbia, uh, which is about sustainable suburbia, a version of, um, and, and I love the word, and I'd love to say to you that I'd spent years thinking about that, but actually I was in a band when I was 18 called Superbia, and uh, I just think it's a great title, but don't you think it's a great idea as well? So let's just, let's think, let's do suburb, suburbs First, do you think Sue Lloyd Hurwitz, urban geographer, chief executive of Mervac, and somebody who might know stuff, do you think that um, you know people have rediscovered, if you like, some of the locality, the whole idea, not so much of the thirty-minute city, but the five-minute city? Do you think people have liked the idea? Oh, well, actually, my local community has a place I can go and get coffee. Do you think we've we've come to a view that we would like to see a more um, vibrant? mixed use kind of localities, more of them in I, our cities? I think without doubt, there is definitely a hyper-local theme going on. And we, we see in, in a, well, our presence in our retail centres, for example, people actively choosing to support independent local retailers rather than, than beige chains, anonymous retail chains. I think, and I think when you're restricted to five kilometres from your home, you notice things that you'd never seen before in your community. You, met, you meet people that you never met before. Uh, it's a, so I, yes, absolutely, I think there's a hyper-local thing. And I guess when we think about urban environments, we're not thinking just the CBD. The urban environment to us is yeah. the whole of the city and it needs to have that whole housing continuum uh, because people need things at different stages of their lives and they have different preferences. Now, I don't think it's true that there's been a mass move away from apartment living to people needing single homes. Now, but what we have seen, to your point, is people do want more space, and we've seen a massive uptick in people wanting to do apartment amalgamations. 
so buying a three bed and a one bed and we amalgamate and we redesign it so so now it's a, a four bed apartment and one of the drivers is that the differential between the house price of a standalone established house in a suburb let's take green square south of sydney australia's largest urban renewal project uh, we're we're in the middle of uh, selling uh, three apartment um, diff different heights mid-rise apartments the price of a three-bedroom house in that catchment is double the price of a three-bedroom apartment and people are choosing to sell their home and they want to stay in the area they love the area and they can they can release equity from their home and they can live in something of comparable size better quality probably higher amenity for half the price it's a really key driver of apartment sales and demand and you, you know you think if you read the commentary that nobody's selling any apartments that's just not true at all yeah. uh, we we are selling at a very healthy rate to owner occupiers who who are attracted to that style of living but we need we need apartments we need uh, we we're trying to work on a new housing typology of micro apartments with shared amenity for you know think of it like student housing but for the not students that's good the, the next stage yeah. up uh, like lower cost to help people save for a deposit more quickly we need build to rent which we've been uh, called different things around the world um, you know multifamily is another way of thinking about it but we absolutely need secure homes in a rental format um, for Australians and I'm happy to talk about that because we're absolutely passionate about no, I want to talk about that because yeah I want to talk about that because I think you, you've been a bit of an international leader on on build to rent and three or four years ago five years ago maybe when we we're having some of these conversations I was much more pessimistic about whether we would get built to rent up in in Australia because there are all sorts of things around you know the incentives and uh whether it actually stacked up and all this kind of stuff but you've made significant progress now how has that happened yes I, I think I've, uh, I've had plenty of people over the years tell me it can't be done yeah. but it turns out it can uh, so we've uh, we now uh got our first built to rent operating in Sydney Olympic Park it's 80 percent leased and uh, we always said that we wanted to prove up the customer proposition first and I think we have well and truly proven up the customer proposition which is uh, no bond white goods are included bring your pet paint the wall in fact we'll paint it for you on-site maintenance uh, uh, all, all the appliances included uh, the there's an on-site management team community curation there's shared amenities cinema room um, co-working spaces and uh, industrial chef's kitchen that you can rent for free uh, so, and people get it and we've got ironically a very great controlled experiment going on because our development at Sydney Olympic Park has got two build to rent towers and two what we call build to sell towers and in those towers we manage 70 apartments on behalf of our investor customers we've got a small business called Res by Murbach and they lease out these apartments that are owned individually by Mr. and Mrs. Smith own an apartment and we rent, we find a tenant. So same location, same developer, same quality, same apartment, the rent that we can get in the build to rent tower for the exact same apartment is 20% higher. So people are prepared to pay some people, it doesn't suit everybody, but there is a segment of the market that are prepared to pay a premium for that customer proposition of service. But it's not just an apartment, it's a service that you get. 
And the community is so vibrant there. It's curating itself. There are walking groups and mother's groups and book reading clubs. And there are a few residents that bake cookies and bring them to the management team. I mean, when did you ever bake cookies for your residential landlord? Never. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very patchy experience generally renting privately. I would say. That's fantastic, by the way. And I, I'm delighted to hear it. I didn't, expe I didn't expect it. I, I, I know we were all pushing for it, but I, I didn't expect you to make the breakthrough and I, I thought it would require big government shifts and blah, blah, blah. and we've had some of that but you've made it work well we we have a very strong conviction that all australians deserve a secure home and private renting is not secure yeah. australians rent on average for 10 years and more to save for a deposit they move on average every two and usually not at their volition the, the social cost of that is huge yeah. they deserve a home no I think it's well said. I'm going to ask you one question about um, affordable housing and the private sector. I'm going to ask about what your views about how we can make progress. We need the public sector to really stand up as well, it seems to me. Uh, you know, my views have always been uh, the big question of housing affordability is actually uh, as much a public sector issue as it's a private sector developer issue. It's more a public sector issue in my, in my view. So I don't think we can make huge progress on that in this conversation. But you, you are very interested also in doing in a sense, uh, affordable housing in the private sector. What do you think the conditions to success are for getting more private sector-led affordable housing up? What are the conditions of success? Well, I'll give you an example of something I think is super simple and really effective. And it's a, a built-to-rent scheme in Queensland, in Brisbane, at our Newstead development. And it was uh, the Queensland government put aside uh, an amount of money and asked for proponents to bring forward built to rent that they already controlled and they had to provide 25% of affordable apartments for key workers who live in the local catchment. So the, the firefighters and the policemen and the teachers and the, the nurses. And there's a 15 year subsidy to, to bridge that 25% between market and um, the, affordable, the affordable apartment. That's it, that's the whole scheme. And I, I think the, it, it, I'm sure it will lease up very very well and the thing that i really like about it is that it's salt and peppered it, it isn't here yeah, yeah. affordable yeah. housing with the different yeah. entrance yeah yeah it's right. you wouldn't know you because you, it's the same building they'll have the access to the same amenity now uh, it's a it's a true community rather than a here is the affordable tower over here and here is the expensive tower over here so we're in the process of building it we just did sod turning this week, so we're very excited to get that going. That's easy. Governments could do that uh, all day long, and you would get close to where people work. You could build build to rent with twenty five percent affordable apartments in them. You can make a significant dent there. So, now, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna send a copy of this tape now to the various ministers of the. We've been trying, <laughs> <laughs> but nobody. It's 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 funny. You know, it, it's, it makes so much sense. It's just a little bit of political imagination. Will you know? It's not really. I mean, they spend money on all sorts of things. It's not the money, you know, the, uh, it's a very sensible. And also I think the community, here's a thought. And I've got one other question to go before we conclude. I want to talk to you about your personal values. Cause I always like asking our guests about where they, where they get their stuff from. Where's it all come from? The, the, the technical thing I want to ask about is the, um, what is a runner for uh, the, the, the um, key worker thing? Is it not, has, has there never been a better moment for the Australian community as one to accept that there is such a thing as a bunch of key workers and we should do something special. So I think it's a great moment for this discussion. Do you not think? 
I do. I actually, I think, and actually, the, the hoarding that we've got around the construction site for this tower that we're building in Brisbane is a homage to key workers. There you go. Right. And it's a mural that we've had painted now of all different types of key workers saying thank you. And it doesn't have our logo on it. It is just the key workers on the hoarding around my, us. My official technical response to that is, "What's not to like?" You know, <laughs> that, right? So that's now the technical thing. I, I'm really, I want to, and then I do the values thing. The technical thing, oh, a technical thing, is a policy thing. What do you think about the future of uh, shopping malls? The um, uh, I'm very interested in this because the big difference between Britain and Australia when I arrived was you've got in-town shopping malls a lot more than I expected. So that, you know, you 38 historic town centres in Sydney, whatever it is, most of them will have some significant shopping mall thing almost right at the heart of them. Um, and then, but, but be very unmixed use around them. It will be very, it's a retail dominated shopping uh, town centre, which is, again, in Britain, you get a bit more um, other jobs, office jobs and stuff. You know, it's a very, so what do you, what do you think about town centres and shopping malls after all this experience? Where's that going? I think it is one of those trends that has been turbocharged. So even before COVID, it was becoming clear to us that the value of urban retail space was not necessarily the sales that are going through the square meters, which is how the industry is revolves around sales per square meter. Because the physical space is doing so much more than that for the retailers. The physical space is showcasing its marketing, its customer acquisitions, its returns. It's all of those things plus sales. because. Retailer doesn't care if you buy the shirt in the store or online, you just buy the shirt. So they don't think in that, they, they think about their customer. And so it was clear to us that the value of the audience is what is, is valuable. And people crave experiences like we were talking about before, boring retail I think is dead, but you have to provide some, some experience that people can connect with. We have just launched uh, a venture called um, uh, just forgot what it's called. Uh, retail as <laughs> a service, um, and it's it's us connecting with on pure play online retailers and introducing them into how they can keep their online presence, but also have a physical presence. And the retailers that can make that shift, they do extraordinarily well. Uh, we, we've we've taken one in in Queensland, a, a clothing. Um, clothing company that was working out of this woman's garage, very successful online, now very well connected into a, a young audience. And she came and took a pop-up store uh, and eventually took a, a full store and her sales have exploded because she's got that, the combination of physical and digital has turbocharged her business. But you can't do it if you have expensive fit outs. And so we've worked out a way, and this is a this one of these COVID things completely random, we were thinking about mm, how can we do modular fit outs that don't take 12 weeks and they're really cheap so we can keep curating this experience and um, we show is what it's called. There we go. Um, memories going in, in COVID as well. Uh, so, so this idea of being able to curate space and have different experiences to bring people into the centre, but you can't do it if you've got this big lumpy fit out that you've got to do every time you churn. So we came across this theatre stage manufacturing company who couldn't do anything because there was no theatre and they said they didn't have any props to make for stages and so they pivoted and worked with us and we've come up with modular retail fit outs and they take three days not 12 weeks and they're, they're cheap and the uh, retailer works with us to work out how they want it designed and we go build it with this this theatre company and three days later they've got a store and it's completely revolutionising how people think about retail space I think I'm, I'm very excited about 
that the future of the right retail with experiences is absolutely alive and well. Uh, and I think we will see that when we get out of lockdown and get out of our spare bedrooms, uh, we will see people want to go out, want to do, want to have experiences. Uh, but if you are a boring, unadapted retailer, watch out because I think that is for the death row. So I, I'm, going to, I'm going to end, almost end, uh, uh, on that point. I love that point of optimism and innovation. Um, I also think that, in, using my language, the, we'll, the, the inventive people in public and private sector will be all about restoring sociability to our, to our various different spaces going forward, it seems to me, because people want sociability, but they'll want it in a, in a healthy and in, safety, in a safe way, but they'll definitely want sociability. And I think it will just be for the industry and government to be inventive around, around that. I love all that. Now, next year, I think, is 10 years, maybe? Or is it this year, next year, that you've been with Remover? And that's, the company's 50 years old next year. I think. That's right. Right. So two anniversaries. Uh, what I was going to say to you was, Obviously, the company had its values and virtues when you arrived, and that's what attracted you. And you reflect that. You can see there's a long history to, to this, this company. Wait, wait, what's your, what are the two or three things that animate you now at this point in time? So I, I, I hesitate to use this word values and principles, but you know, what are the things that really resonate for you at this point in time? And an even bigger question, you know, where did you get them from? Because I'm, I'm, I'm very interested. I worry that I haven't really changed since I was about 12, growing up in a South Wales mining town. I worry that I carry with me every single prejudice as well as virtue that I ever had. And I didn't acquire many on my journey. But what about you? What are the things that animate you as we end this conversation? Uh, I get really animated around the people angles. The, I get really animated around the curiosity and the openness and the new idea now that really that really animates me and having a view on something and trying something to make the world better i i really get animated around that and, and watching watching people look after each other as we were talking about before i've been moved to tears many times in the year watching our people take care of each other and our, and our customers and the communities around them. So it's just breathtaking. And I, you know, personally, uh, I, I, I have a strong Christian faith, which drives me with the belief that I have a big responsibility to try and do my very, very best, as imperfect as it is, to make what I can influence better. Uh, and I'm, I'm very driven by uh, the saying of, um, from those to whom much has been given, much is expected. And I have been given so much in my life and I keenly feel the responsibility and the drive to do something with that. I think it's not only uh, wonderful to hear that. I think anybody listening to this will believe that that's what animates you. And also I think anybody who's seen the work that you've done will believe that. And just the last thing, and I will not mention his name, but the guy, some of the people I've been working with uh, in, in Mervac on various projects, they also seem to me to uh, embody some of these principles. So um, if I might say thank you very much for your time. It's been a tremendous conversation. And uh, I think if half the things that you've said get done out there, then we will have a triumphant return of our cities. Thank you very much, Sue Lloyd Hewitt. Thank you, Tim. You've been listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. 
Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.